uh, missions trip to Paris. Um, and so at the Welcome Center, there are cards just like this that have all the information you're going to need on there. Uh, primarily, this is a prayer card, but we also want to encourage you to let it be a support card as well. Uh, there is information on there if you'd like to give how to do that. Um, there's a QR code here you can scan. There's also a website where you can do that. It tells you who to make the checks out to and all of that stuff. Um, one thing that we do want to encourage you with is uh, we had, I don't know who, obviously I didn't see it, but somebody um, gave for Abby but gave it to the church just probably because they, you know, it was announced from the church and everything. Um, she's not going through us, and so you give the money directly to what the card says, okay? So give it to Abby, or if you're writing a check, it tells you right on there who to make a check out to. Put Abby on there, or Abby Corbett with the, uh, I think it's 2020, yeah, Paris 2024, and Abby Corbett on the check in the memo line or whatever. So just want to clear up any confusion there. If don't give it to the church, give it either right to Abby um, or fill it out as it says on here. But you can grab this at the Welcome Center. And if you have any questions, you can see her or let Renee know. I'm sure she can give you more information. So just wanted to clear that up. All right. Um, also, we are really excited about uh, this coming Sunday is Football Sunday, and so we have that going on. We've done this now for a few years, and it's just kind of a fun thing we do on Super Bowl Sunday. And so we're going to be doing uh, some interactive trivia, not just with those on the stage. This is going to involve the whole church, so everyone will be, in, be able to be involved in this one. It's going to be a lot of fun, really easy. Uh, you'll be able to jump. Um, also, uh, we will have, obviously, some encouraging testimonies, and then we'll be sharing a little bit, obviously, from God's Word uh, about how we can fit into God's game plan. So we want to talk about that. So that's going to be going on Sunday. So invite someone to join you. If you do have any kind of football, jerseys, t-shirts, whatever, feel free to wear that stuff. Again, just kind of fun with it. And then uh, first through sixth grade junior church will be with us in the service. So they will not be dismissed to class. Um, seems like the kids have a good time being with us during that morning. Um, also tonight, the kids in Word of Life are receiving their uh, kind of informational and invite cards for the uh, family skating event. Uh, that's going to be going on March 2nd. And so this has kind of just been planned. We just got the date locked in today. Um, so this is something we did last year over at the skating rink in Lapeer. And so it's basically the same event. So the cost is $10 per skater. That includes adults as well. Um, we do need 50 skaters to be a part of this, to be able to, to rent the thing out for uh, just our, our group. So that's going to be going on. So $10 per skater. Uh, if you come and are not skating, you can just come to kind of hang out. But we obviously encourage you to get involved and, and be involved in everything if you can. Um, also, lunch is included. So there's going to be pizza and soda as well. Um, you can, again, the kids will get the cards tonight so they can invite anyone to come to this. Uh, this is, again, to our whole Word of Life ministry. So preschool through sixth grade is welcome to come. Uh, again, March 2nd, the time on that is 11.30 to 1.30. Uh, doors open at about 11.15. So people can start showing up a little bit early and get going. All right. So that's going to be in the bulletin this Sunday as well. So you have more information on that. Um, food drive is going on. Again, that started up this last Sunday. So I encourage you to get involved in that. Um, get plugged into that, bring some non-perishable food items out. Um, again, just letting you know about the student snack night that's coming up this month as well, February 18th. Um, and then the prayer adoption, uh, that's going on. I think that starts Sunday technically or finishes up Sunday. Um, so if you did not sign up for the prayer adoption, you basically sign up, you're saying you'll pray for somebody else in the church and somebody else on that list will 
uh, receive your family name or your name to be praying for you. So that's going to be going on again starting up this Sunday, or this Sunday is the last Sunday to sign up. I guess I'll say it that way. All right. So lots of things going on. Really excited about it. Um, so thankful for all that we've been able to be a part of already this year and excited for what the Lord has for us as we move through February. All right. I know it was feeling more like spring today, and, uh, but it's not. Just a little shock moment there. It's not spring yet. Oh, did you? Okay, so that, that's it. It's done. Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. Okay, ready and fight. Go. Okay, no. Um, all right. So, again, lots of things going on. Uh, so excited to be a part of those things. And uh, I pray that you'll consider being a part of those things as well. All right? Well, let's go ahead and do this. We'll open in prayer. And then we'll uh, kind of share what we did last week and then make sure those that weren't here get some handouts and we'll move into our devotion. All right, let's pray. Uh, to just come before your throne, Lord, to spend time in your word, that it would uh, affect us and change us, Lord, that it would grow us and continue to uh, allow us to mature into who you've called us to be. Father, we pray for the services tonight with our Word of Life group, uh, with the Gopher Buddies and the Olympians. We think of the students uh, upstairs, the, the teen ministry, Lord. Uh, we think about just our time in here, Lord. I just pray that in, in every way that your spirit would move among us, that you would work through all the different lessons and devotions, that you would give clarity of mind to those that are teaching, that you'd give a receptive heart and mind to those that are receiving what's being given tonight, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for every volunteer, every helper, teacher, uh, Lord, it makes a difference in what they're doing to impact uh, this generation uh, for Christ. And so, Father, again, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your love and grace. And we pray, Father, that we would be just, Lord, re ready to receive, ready and, and hungry for what your word has for us, Lord, that we would apply it to our lives and be changed because of it. Father, again, thank you for your grace to us, your gospel, which allows us to have this relationship with you. And Lord, we do pray for all these upcoming events and activities. Lord, we pray that you would just be with each one, Lord, that it would bring glory to you and that somebody through these different things would come to know Christ. And so, Father, again, we thank you for tonight and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last week, um, we gave you guys a, a copy, a printout rather, of Psalm 51. And so I'll explain a little bit of what we did and then I'll make sure if you didn't get one or forgot yours, uh, I'll give you one. I have got some uh, extras. So what we did is we did something we kind of did on Sunday nights for a while. And so what we would do is we'd pass out a text. It could be various texts. And then there's plenty of room on here for you to write. So what you're going to do is, is you're going to make observations about what you read in the text. And so one of the things we're talking about Sunday night that I want to remind you of is a simple way to do Bible study is uh, remembering O as in the letter O, I, and A. Okay, so O-I-A. So observations, interpretations, application. And so that's a simple way to kind of remember when you're coming across the Bible text. This could be in your own personal devotions. It can be if you're looking at a whole book of the Bible. What are some observations we can make about the text? So if there's repetition of words, repetition of phrases, uh, who's speaking to who, uh, what type of literature is this in the Bible? Now we're going to be in Psalm 51. And so what type of literature is that? What, how do we describe the literature of Psalms? Poetry, okay? If we are reading in, say, Ezekiel, what kind of literature would that be considered? Yeah, prophecy, 
right? Obviously, the Gospels are kind of unique to themselves. So if we were in John chapter 4, we would call that a gospel literature or the, the life and ministry of Christ is being talked about. So each of those kind of plays into how we understand the text. So those are observations we make it, we're making. Um, if we know who's involved in the text, so if there's a, a name mentioned, like in our case, we know this is referring to David. It doesn't say David, but we know David is the author of this. And so we would think, okay, maybe make a note. David is, is writing this or, or whatnot. Um, we talked about it before. There's some, a sin that happens before this text. And this is kind of his famous repentant psalm. And so you know that, you would write that. Okay, this is after the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Okay. Um, if other Bible passages come to your mind while you're reading through the text, you jot those down. Okay. Because scripture interprets, interprets scripture. So it's really just giving you a chance to make some observations. Interpretation is basically asking, what does the text mean? So I've made all these observations. I kind of got a good idea of what's going on in the text. Now, what does that mean? How do I, how do I interpret this text? Once I get the meaning of the text, Okay, a verse, the text, or even an entire book of the Bible, we can get a general meaning of what's going on there. Now we apply it to our lives. And I, I strongly believe application is the, the greatest part of this process. Because here's the thing. You can understand all day long what the Bible says or what that text me- says and means. But if you don't apply it to your life, you're not going to be changed by it. So application is very, very important. Interpretation is important because we have to misunderstand the text what's going to happen with my application? It's going to be wrong. Okay. I'll give you an example. There's promises in scripture from cover to cover. Some of those promises are to us, the church. Some of those promises are not to us. They are to Israel. And so many Christians with great intention have gone back to the old Testament, took a promise that was to Israel specifically, took this specific promise and applied it to the church. And then we wonder and we scratch our heads and go, why isn't this happening? Because that wasn't meant for us. In principle, we can, we can take that application. We can see the heart of God in that promise. But and I, maybe I'll do a, a message series on this. I was thinking about this the other day. There's a, a, a lot of people will say, well, it's the same God, right? So if it's the same God yesterday and today and forever, then all the promises apply. And so I was thinking of a series maybe doing something like same God but different promises, Something like that, because the character of God remains the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But how he interacts with mankind has and has changed and does change moving forward into, as we've been talking about in Revelation. So, so all of this to say, we want to help you, I want to help you get very comfortable with taking a text of Scripture and understanding what it means and then applying that to your life. Okay? So that's what we're doing tonight. So we're doing Psalm 51. So if you weren't here last week and or don't have your handout, raise your hand and I can get you one. But I would also like a, a volunteer maybe or two for clipboards and pens. Somebody like to help with clipboards and pens? Raise your hand if you need one. Okay. Can you hand that back to them, please? Nope, right back here to Rhonda. Did you need one or two? Just one? Okay. Everyone's got to do their own work, though. No, no, no group work. Yeah, that means you need to. There you go. And that should be four. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, no problem. There you go. 
All right, so clipboards, pens, if you need a pen, we got pens up here. <laughs> Usually William's the only one that I just can't get to take one. So here's what we'll do. I know we did this last week, um, but since we do have some that weren't with us, we'll give you some time to work through the text. There are two sides to this. So usually I wouldn't do this many verses, but um, I went ahead and just gave you the entire psalm. Um, when you're doing this at home or on your own, you might pick a few less verses to really kind of dive into it. You just want to get enough verses, usually between five to ten verses, gives you a good context. Um, but you may go more than that. You may print off a lot more than that. Um, some people, what they'll do is when they do these kind of studies, they'll actually take the verse numbers off as well. Because sometimes the verse numbers can make us think a thought has stopped when it really hasn't. Uh, in some places, a chapter might end. You start in the next chapter, and it's a continuation of the same thought. So sometimes the verse numbers, which are there to help us memorize and, and be able to reference Scripture, can kind of get in the way sometimes. So that might help you if you maybe find yourself doing that. Take the numbers off and just look at it as a text, just a straight text, all right? I'll give you an example, then we'll give you a few minutes to kind of work through it. So the very first verse, this is an example of what you may want to underline or circle or things like that. So there's some phrases we talked about last week. So he says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings. So the first thing we're going to identify is there's some key words here. If, if it was me and on my paper when I did this in the office, the words are three words that jumped out to me. Now with those, you want to note that the grace is from God. The faithfulness is your faithfulness, right? God's faithfulness. And the compassion is his compassion. What's the only thing in verse 1 that applies to the humanity? My wrongdoings. So you're noting already, the author of the psalm is identifying God is gracious, faithful, and compassionate. I'm full of wrongdoings. So you see how that's going to help us in understanding the rest of the text, okay? So that's just going to give you a rough idea of what to do moving forward. So we'll give you guys a few minutes to go ahead and work through the text, and then we'll come back and we'll share what we have.
let you guys finish up that thought, and then we'll dive in here. So we covered, uh, last week, we started with the first six verses, and so the way I kind of broke the psalm up uh, was verses 1 through 6, 7 through 12, and then I went uh, 13 through 19. So kind of broke it up into three sections. Um, just how when I was reading through it, it seemed to have some breaks in there. You may break it up differently. You might put more breaks in there, or you may look at this as just one continuous uh, prayer, which it is, and so therefore maybe you don't have any breaks in there. Um, but it just kind of made it easier for me and my thinking to kind of group it that way. So verses 1 through 6, uh, we talked about there, if you want to jot out to the side somewhere, uh, this is David's humble admittance of sin. So this is where David humbly admitted of his sin. He admitted what he had done. Uh, he kind of owned it. Um, I talked about those three key words, grace, faithfulness, and compassion. Uh, remember, God's faithfulness is not like our faithfulness, right? Our faithfulness is conditional. His faithfulness is to us even when we're unfaithful to him. Uh, we talked about also, uh, you could put next to verse 2, uh, 1 John 1, 9 is a great reference there under verse 2. So that would be a reference there. Uh, also, David admitted that he basically was born in sin. He's like, I, I was kind of born as a sinner. Um, and this kind of affirms, again, another verse you could jot down there uh, is Romans 5.12. Right around verse 5 there in the psalm, Romans 5.12 speaks to that idea that we are uh, sinners because of Adam, that that sin nature has been passed down to us. All right. Um, also, we also talked about a little bit that um, David is feeling the guilt of the sin, the weight of the sin. And as he's going through this process of repenting and kind of calling his sin what it is and being honest before God, he admits that God is right, right, and justified, verse 4, and blameless when he judges him. So those are key things. David's saying, it's, you're not the problem, I'm the problem. But also David is going to kind of walk through this psalm in a point of that guilt that he feels as he's repenting, that guilt is being removed. So that's a big thing we talked about last week, that once we repent, that guilt is removed. Now, guilt in the sense that it draws us to conviction by the work of the Spirit is very good, right? But guilt felt after repentance is of the flesh. God does not want us to have our heads down, beating ourselves up, things. So we have to be careful there. But David is walking that out. And it's one of the reasons I love the Psalms is David is kind of showing us what a lot of us have felt in different ways during our Christian lives. And so moving into verses 7 through 12, if you'd like to jot off to the side there, just what I kind of titled this section, uh, this is where David's, uh, David's desire to be changed. David's desire to be changed. Okay, so verses 7 through 12. Now, he says right there in verse 7, it says, Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Cleanse me, and I will be whiter than snow. So here we see, when he's talking about this idea of purging him, so that word purge would be something you would identify. Um, he asked the Lord to purge him with hyssop, to make him clean, and to wash him, to make him whiter than snow. This idea of purify me. To purge, that word there in verse 7, means to purify by removing a stain. So it actually means to remove a stain 
to purify that thing. Hyssop was a plant that the priests used in ceremonial cleansings. If you read uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on, you're going to read about that. Um, They dipped a bunch of hyssop in the blood of a sacrificial animal, and then they would sprinkle the blood uh, on the person or, or who required cleansing, or they would also talk about sprinkling it on the mercy seat. So they would actually use that as a form of purifying. It's, it's symbolizing that the blood is purifying the one who needs to be cleansed. A reference point you could jot down there uh, with verse 7 would be Leviticus 14, 4 through 7. So Leviticus 14, 4 through 7 would be a good reference to see the use of blood-dripped hyssop in sprinkling seven times the person who is to be cleansed of leprosy. So this idea of cleansing, okay? Now, Praise the Lord, right? Whose blood has been sprinkled on us? Christ. That's why the blood is talked about so much. And I know in a lot of churches, any songs that talk about the blood are like, that's weird, that's kind of gross, we need to take that out because that's, that freaks out the unchurched. Now, if an unchurched person walks into a church service and they're talking about the blood of Jesus, this or that, I could see why that person would go, that's a little weird. I don't, I don't get what that's talking about. We don't then remove the blood and talking about the blood. What do we do? We disciple that person to understand what the blood represents. Okay. I understand why the world would see that and think that's really weird. That's kind of, kind of gross, but we can still teach them how valuable the blood is, which again, what is this doing? It's connecting the old to the new Testament, right? If we understand the old Testament, the sacrifice of Christ becomes a lot clearer. And I think a lot more powerful, right? It takes on more meaning and emphasis. So David here is crying out to be purged, to be cleansed, to be washed whiter than snow. David also recognized that not only is he asking to be made whiter than snow, he's realizing he would be made whiter than snow. So we need to note that as well. Uh, In Isaiah 1.18, you can jot that reference down there with verse 7 as well. Uh, The Lord invited the sinful people of Judah to come to him and and reason with him, promising, and this is Isaiah 1.18, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So it's this idea among God's people. We want to be cleansed and made right. Uh, We see David's confidence here in the Lord's forgiveness. Uh, How many times in verse 7 does he say, I will? Right. Twice he says that. Again, we, we pause and we note that. Okay, he's saying, I will this, I will that. That's confident, right? He's saying, I I know God because I'm repenting and crying out, I will be washed, I will be cleansed. And so he is expressing a trust in the faithfulness of God. So remember all the way back in verse 1, your faithfulness. What is God's faithfulness going to do? It's going to cleanse. Now, through verses 8 through 12, we see some requests of David. David has some requests that he's asking of God. So what's one of the first requests he asks here? He's asking that his guilt and sorrow be turned into joy and gladness. Right? That's what he's saying there in verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. What has he been experiencing? Not joy and gladness, but what? Sorrow, guilt, shame, all those things. He's saying, I want to hear that again. I want to I change my, my worship to go from sorrowful to praiseworthy and edifying of the Lord. He also asks 
uh, there at the end, he says, let the bones you have broken rejoice. Now, did God actually break his bones? Did God come down and break a leg or something? No. What does he mean when he says that? Why does he say, let the bones that you have broken? He doesn't have a broken bone. That's not literal. It's poetic. Yes. So I want to rejoice because this brokenness is a good thing because it's brought me to this point of repentance, right? He says, my, my bed is soaked with that. My bones ache is another way he says this in a different psalm. My bones ache. So that's the idea there. Absolutely. He also asks here, uh, and that was kind of more just expressing, but he asks in verse 9, what's the very first thing he asks God to do there? Yeah, his sins would be hidden from the Lord. Now, is, is anything really hidden from the Lord? Of course not, because he's all-knowing. But does God choose, fast forward to the believer, does God choose to forget our sin? Yeah, and he does what with it in the New Testament? Cast it as far as the east is from the west. It's not that he forgets because he's just forgetful. He chooses, when it says forgets, it means he's choosing to not hold us responsible or hold our sins against us. It's not like God actually doesn't know you did that. Of course he does. But he's choosing under the cross to not hold it against you. How can he do that? He can only do that and be just and holy because of what Jesus did for us. Had Jesus not gone to the cross and God not hold us reliable or liable for our sins, he would be unjust. He would not be a holy God. But because of the sacrifice of Christ, he's able to do that. So how can David say in the Psalms before Jesus has ever come, forget my sins, hide my sins from your face? Because he's crying out for that grace we talked about in verse 1. So how is it God in the Old Testament cannot hold David liable for his sins? Because Jesus is coming. Only way people were saved in the Old Testament and their sins forgiven, yes, they had to be obedient to the word of God, but really what is that? That's just putting their faith and trust in him. And because Christ was going to come and die on the cross, their, their sins were being covered and, and paid for. So we look back to the cross, they were looking to the cross. Okay, It is crucial. Um, then he asks that his guilty deeds will be wiped out. So not just hide your face, but wipe away those deeds. He's asking to be made justified. Justified. So we in the New Testament, we hear that term a lot, justified. And how do most people reference that word justified? What's well, a simple way of thinking about what that word means? Just as if I'd never sinned, right? It's not only you're declared not guilty, you're actually declared innocent. Why? Again, not because of me, but the sinless life of Christ is imputed to your account. And the sin that you had was imputed to Christ on the cross. And so again, he's saying, would you just wipe them out? I don't want any record of them. Because why? He doesn't want that between him and God. Right? And we're going to talk about in a minute here. He also wants to be used of God in this world, which is an amazing part of this psalm. He also asks that his heart would be new and his spirit steadfast. That his heart would be new and his spirit steadfast. Okay? You could put it this way. That's his inner man. The inward man. Okay, so he's saying, in my inner parts, in my deepest part of me, let it be new. Let it be refreshed and renewed. Now, a verse that comes to my mind when I think about this idea for the believer is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Right? 
renew my mind, renew a right thinking in me. Like, transform me to think and feel as you do, Lord. Uh, What else does he ask for here in verse 11? How would you summarize verse 11, that first part? Yeah, I love that. He's asking God to stay with him. I love that. He wants to be in God's presence. Don't kick me out of your presence. Now, this is kind of an interesting one. I was reading through some other resources on this. I love this. As the author of Psalm 23, David was, right? So as the author of Psalm 23, it was the presence of God that gave God, presence of God that gave David confidence in the valley of the shadow of death, Right? I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. So David is saying, what has happened between what I've done in my sin and everything, don't let that cause you to cast me out of your presence because I need to be in your presence because that's where my joy is. That's where my my peace is. That's where my confidence is in you. And he he understands that because he understands Psalm 23. Also think of it this way. Who was the king before David? Saul. How did Saul's reign end? Not very good. The Holy Spirit left him and he was cast from God's presence. So David, in this one author's opinion, and I love the way he worded this, David is crying out, don't let me end up like Saul. Like, I don't want to end up like Saul did. I saw that. I saw what happened there. Don't let me end up like that. Don't take your presence from me. David does not want what happened to Saul to happen to him. Now, a big difference here. David is doing something that Saul never really fully did, and that's repent. Now, Saul would admit some things when he got caught, right? But he never really fully repented with the way David is repenting here. Because by the way, they both got confronted with their sin, right? Saul was confronted. Hey, did you do what God said? Sure, sure. Why do I hear cattle in the background if you did everything you were supposed to do? oh, well, that was the people and that was this and making all these excuses. Nathaniel comes to David. Hey, David, you're the man. David says what? You're right. And he just admits it and he starts to repent of it. So there's a vast difference between Saul and David. Again, God is not letting David off the hook. So many times we think that. No, David is going to pay a consequence for this sin. But the difference is grace is being given where when we refuse to repent apart from Christ, we know that our sins are counted to us. Even in Christ, when we refuse to repent, there's consequences to that. We don't lose our salvation, but there's consequences to that. Uh, One more point here. Actually, two more, and then we'll open it up for questions. Uh, The next thing, what does he ask for in verse 11? Yeah, so don't kick me out of your presence and don't take your spirit from me. Now, we need to note this part because this is a unique Old Testament points. The Holy Spirit operated differently in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. This is again, is it the same God yesterday, today, and forever? The Trinity was the Trinity in Genesis 1, and the Trinity is the Trinity in the end of Revelation. The difference is how the Holy Spirit came upon individuals and why he came upon them. So primarily in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon for a purpose or a position. So a prophet would receive the spirit to prophesy. Uh, A king was anointed, right? That was just a physical anointing to represent the spiritual anointing being chosen by God, 
right? So a prophet, a king, and a priest of the spirit, right? How was Samson so strong? Not because of his long hair, right? That wasn't why Samson was strong, and that's not why Samson lost his strength because his hair got cut. We, we misconstrued that whole thing. Samson was strong because the spirit of God was upon him. And there was a covenant that Samson entered into. Actually, Samson's parents entered into. And Samson was to keep that covenant. And over the course of his life, he broke the key aspects of that covenant. The cutting of the hair was just the last part of the covenant he hadn't broken yet. But he had done everything else. He ate from a dead animal. He drank alcohol. He consumed it. He did all these things he wasn't supposed to do. So he was breaking the covenant. So as a response to that, God said, okay, I'm taking my spirit from you. But we have to remember the spirit operates differently in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. When Jesus initiated the new covenant through his death, burial, and resurrection, the spirit now is an indwelling spirit upon the believers, upon the church. This is why, and you can jot this down, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We are sealed unto the day of redemption. And at the end of that verse which Ephesians 1 talks all about salvation and the aspects of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all being involved in our salvation process. There is no asterisk at the end of that verse. It doesn't say, if you don't do this or until you do this. That's the difference. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon somebody for a purpose, for a position, and at times the Spirit would leave, not even just because of sin. Sometimes the spirit would cease to work upon a person because that person was done. They had, they'd fulfilled what they were supposed to do. In the New Testament, under the new covenant, because again, in Hebrews, everything in Jesus is better. We are sealed through the spirit because again, everyone in the Old Testament looking to the cross, we're looking back, the finished work of the cross. So we're part of that chosen people, the church, and we're filled with the spirit and sealed with the spirit. And so again, it's a different aspect of the ministry of the spirit. Okay, so I've heard people say this verse as me as a believer. He will never take his pray this prayer. We cannot pray, Lord, do not take your spirit from me as a believer. He will never take his spirit from us as a believer because he says he seals us with that spirit to the day of redemption. Okay, so just note that in this passage, we have to, again, put this in its context, right? This is Old Testament. So some things will not apply directly. The principle of this, though, is, again, important. What is David really saying? I just want to be near you. And I want to be useful. That's how I kind of read this. David is saying, don't let me be useless in your work. Don't take your spirit from me because then I can do nothing for you. And I want to live for you. I want to do what you want me to do. So in principle, we could say, Lord, don't let sin in my life rob me of making sure that I'm useful for you and surrendered to you and that, that sacrificial life that's able to be used by you. Remove any sin from me, Lord, that would cause me to be unuseful for your kingdom. It's kind of how I see the maybe principal application here. One more, and then we'll open up for any questions. Yes. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. Yep. And actually, it's a, Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 is a great New Testament example of the Trinity. If you have somebody who's like, I don't believe in the Trinity. I don't think that's real. This is a great example to go to because you see Father, Son, and Spirit. Last one. Uh, letter, or it's my letter, G. You don't have an outline. Um, so last thing he asks for in this part of the section is what? The joy of his salvation to be restored. So really, what is he saying here? I want the relationship to be joyful again. 
I want there to be a joy in this relation that I have with you, this relationship I have with you. Again, he's, salvation is used here, but we have to keep it in the context of the Old Testament. So many people go, well, he lost the spirit, so he lost his salvation. He doesn't say, give me again my salvation. What does he say? I want the joy of your salvation. You have done this work in me, and I want there to be joy there like there was before I stumbled into and committed this sin. All right? Uh, before we move to the last few verses, and we'll move quickly because we're out of time. Um, any questions, comments, or thoughts? Renee. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. That the relationship before all this was so strong, and he'd walked with God for so long, that he got to know his Savior, and he knew who he really was, so he could ask these things and have confidence that God would respond a certain way. That's a great point. And I think that's great for us as believers, because sometimes we can walk with the Lord and then something will happen in our lives, a sin, a situation, or a tragedy or something, and we're tempted to doubt who God really is. And that's why it's so important that we know who he is according to his word, not according to who he is based on our feelings in the moment. Because sometimes my feelings tell me one thing about God, like that's not fair and he shouldn't have done this. But the word draws me back to his character, his, his attributes, right? I still feel the same way, but I can now go to him confidently because I know him, right? Julie. Mm-hmm. Um, our sin, we have a tendency sometimes to let our sins make us, in our mind, not useful. Oh, sure. Before, yep. Where he realized that he, he desired to have to be used. Yes. See later, that he, I will be able to be used. Excuse but me. we often um, lie to ourselves or allow the enemy to lie to us that we're no longer useful. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. No, that's a great point. And I've, I've talked to believers. You've experienced this. I've experienced it in my life. Like, there's no way God can use me after what I did. Or you may be thinking, well, I did this. And then that's the line, right? We draw a line here and go, God's grace is good up to this point. And then once I cross that line, now his grace is all used up or it's not applicable to me anymore. Um, and, and nothing could be farther from the truth. When we sin, we actually, I believe, we run to him, we're restored, and now we have a beautiful way to communicate God's grace differently than we did before. Because now I've experienced it in a different way, and I can say, listen, I know what you're saying, I've been there, right? All right, let's jump into these last few verses quickly, because I don't want to take too much time uh, before prayer. Uh, so the last thing we see here, if you want to jot up to the side there, this section, 13 through 19, I just kind of titled, David's response to being restored. David's response to being restored. So, and again, poetic, so you can kind of love the form of this psalm. Uh, verses 13 through 19, the very first word of verse 13 is so important. What's the first word? Okay, circle that, okay? Circle the word then, because here's the key. He's saying, now that all of this has happened, all of this confessing and repenting and crying out to you, believing that you're going to wipe out my sins, you're going to do these things because of that. Now, here's what I'm asking you would use me to do for your glory. So David's response to being restored is to be surrendered for the purposes of God. So this whole section to me is David kind of crying out saying, Lord, I want to be surrendered to your purposes. 
Now, it's amazing to note, you can jot this off anywhere, maybe down on the bottom, uh, who is uh, David's son that ends up building the temple? Solomon. Who is Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. So again, we know the child they had in their sin is taken. But they will have a child, Solomon, who is the builder of the temple. By the way, David wanted to do that, and God told him early on that wasn't going to happen. But you can get everything ready, more or less. I'm paraphrasing. So Solomon builds the temple. Solomon's considered the wisest man apart from Christ. And again, wise in a specific way. He wasn't all wise in every way. If you read the actual text, it says that he asked for wisdom and judgment and discernment. So he was wise in those areas. Was he wise in relationships? Nope. Was he wise in obedience? Nope. He did a bunch of things he shouldn't have done. And many think he, his decisions led to the divided kingdom following his reign. So he wasn't wise in every possible way. He gets pictured that way. But he was wise and he was used of God mightily to build the temple. So isn't it amazing? The son of David and Bathsheba, a relationship that should have never happened, really, right? For being honest. God can still bless in that and bring about his glory. And that's why I love when Romans 8, 28 talks about that he uses all things for good. That's not a New Testament only principle. He always has used all things for good, meaning his good, his glory, and our blessing. So it's amazing to see that. Now, he also starts off with what will he do now that he's been restored? What's the first thing he says? I will teach wrongdoers. Now, this is the NASB, your ways. Now, remember what we said earlier? What does he say his only part of this is? He says, for I know my wrongdoings. And what are wrongdoings? Same verse earlier, he says, that's sin. So what is he saying here? I'm going to teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners, so wrongdoers are sinners, will be converted to you. Now, what I did was I underlined teach wrongdoers your ways. So that's teaching them the law of God, basically, as we want to kind of summarize that. And then I circled the word sinners. Now, next to sinners, write like himself. Because that's really what he's saying. Now that you've done all this for me, a sinner, a wrongdoer, I'm going to now teach other wrongdoers, other sinners of what's available to them in you, in your grace, your compassion, and your faithfulness. He realized that when God restored him, he could use him, David, to speak that truth to others. And also, he says this later on in verse 14. He talks about saving me from the guilt of bloodshed. God, again, this is going back to the idea of saving me and bringing me back into right relationship with you. God of my salvation. So first it was your salvation. Now it's my salvation. And I love this. That's the balance of what we have in Christ. Who initiated salvation for us? God through Christ, but we Romans ten thirteen for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. So is it my salvation? Yes. Is it his salvation? Yes. Right. He is my shepherd and my God, but he's also sovereign King and sovereign Lord. And so again, there's a relationship here, but then he says this, then, so circle then again, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. So he wants to speak to sinners, the truth of what can happen when they repent? And he wants to sing the praises of God. And I wrote this down. Repentance always leads to praise. Repentance always leads to praise. How could we not praise the one who has forgiven us? How can we not praise the 
David goes beyond surface religious works to try to please God. He cries out with a broken heart. We see that in the next couple of verses here. Empty sacrifices mean nothing to the Lord. However, a sacrifice giving with a right heart in humility is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. Now, I, I jot this down. You can study it on your own. Look it up later. Uh, jot down Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. This comes to mind when I think about the empty religious sacrifices going through the motions and a broken heart. Uh, Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is the Pharisee and the publican. So just read that passage. It's going to hopefully draw your attention back to this. A sacrifice given with the right heart in humility is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. Yep. This also reminds us of another passage, and I'll give this to you as well. Uh, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. This idea of coming broken before the Lord, coming honest before the Lord. This is where it says if you come before his throne, he'll give you grace and mercy in the proper time. Right? That he understands our brokenness, our limitations, our weaknesses. Right? Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. So again, what's the key? Humility, humbling ourselves before the Lord. Now the last two verses here, 18 and 19. Some uh, have said that maybe this, these two verses were added later. Um, because this most likely became a psalm of praise that would be sung to the Lord. Um, maybe some of the later on uh, song leaders and those that were involved in writing the Psalms would have added this on to make it more of a general, not so much just specific to David. Uh, others, however, say that no, this is all fully accredited to David. Uh, it really doesn't change the heart of the Psalm or the meaning of the Psalm because the idea in those last two verses is again, crying out to the Lord to show favor to his people, to Jerusalem, to guard and protect them. When it says the walls of Jerusalem, that's only referring to the walls. It's meaning protect us, guard us, uh, uh, give us security. That's, that's the idea there. And then again, once we come with the right heart, what's the response? Now we'll give sacrifices that he'll receive, right? And he'll take those. Um, again, something interesting to note, you can jot down one more verse. I got a lot for you. I know, apologize about that, I guess. But uh, Acts 13.36 Acts 13.36 tells us that David served his own generation by the will of God. No reference in Acts 13.36 to Bathsheba, to Uriah, to his sin, none of it. Actually, nowhere in the rest of Scripture does God say anything about David's sin. That's hugely encouraging to us. Did David really serve the purposes of God in his own generation his whole life? No. But because he repented, what does God say? David, I did what you asked. I wiped that away. I hid my face from that. So David, you served me in your whole life for my purposes. That's what repentance does. It doesn't just bandage us up. It makes us new. And God chooses to do that in Christ. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead. So we're not held accountable for our sins. In, when it talks about the judgments of the end times, there's two judgments that are talked about. So there's the great white throne judgment in Revelation. 
And that's when it talks about the dead will give up their, the dead and then hell will give up their dead. And all, everyone is judged from the books. So those that are not in Christ, so those that are apart from Christ, the ones he says, you never knew me, they're before the great white throne judgment. That's only a place of judging sinners apart from Christ. They'll be cast as called the, the uh, Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul talks about we'll stand in judgment and we'll receive crowns for the things we've done. Crown of righteousness, crown of life, so on and so forth. At the Bema seat, Christians are not judged for salvation. We're judged in regards to the works we've done for Christ. So when we're doing things for Christ on earth, we're going to be rewarded for that in heaven. But a Christian, somebody who's in Christ, will not stand before the great white throne judgment. That is only for unbelievers. So we will not give an account for our sin. That's settled. Paul says that all of our works will go through the fire and be refined. And whatever remains for Christ will be rewarded. So that's the idea there. So we are giving an account as Christians, not for salvation, but for works. Unbelievers are given an account for their sin because they're, they're in their sin. They have not received Christ. So they have to answer for their sin. Yep, so there's two, which can be confusing, so I appreciate you asking that. Abby. Is that uh, the same thing where uh, it talks about when they give it, they mm -hmm. like, Yes, I believe so. Yep, so when, well, I, I think Christians will give an account for that in a sense too, because I think our words are works for Christ. I think how we speak to other people is either going to reflect Christ-likeness or self and, and, and so selfishness. Oh, the talents. Yes, the parable of talents. Yep, yep. Yes, so that's referring to um, our works for Christ. That's how I understand that. Anything we do for Christ. Right. Yeah. I would because, well, Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, you know, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. So if I allow corrupt communication to come out of my mouth, I'm not going to give an answer for that in the sense of sin, but I'm obviously losing an opportunity to say something Christ-like. So I'm losing a reward there in that sense, I guess I would say. But again, ultimately, all the rewards we receive are going to be cast back at Christ's feet. So it's, it's really what Paul's saying is live this life for Christ. Invest in this life for Christ. Where we've fallen short in sin, there's grace for that. We've been forgiven of that. But again, we'll give an account for the things we do for Christ. And the, if we, all we've done is fill our lives with, now we won't because there's fruit in Christ. If we fill our lives with selfish things, that's going to be burned up in the fire is the illustration there. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, and it's not like, it's not like God's going to go, okay, on this day you said this, and on that day you said that. I think, again, it's more of a general sense of using our words for Christ is the idea. So, all right, let's do this. We're going to just dismiss you guys to prayer because it's 8.05. So um, I don't want to take any more time from prayer time. You guys, I've used too much of your time. So ladies, down the hallway there, men, we're going to head to the library most likely. I have three prayer guides that are new. If you did not get one, I have three left over from last week. You can grab that up front here.